As a long-time foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Well, hello and welcome or welcome back if you're a return listener. I'm Nurse Mo, and this is the Straight A Nursing Podcast, where I teach nursing concepts and share tips on how to thrive in nursing school and at the bedside. Now, before we get into the topic of central line infections, let's take a quick minute for my listener shout out so I can celebrate you a little bit. And this one goes out to someone who uses the name on Apple Podcasts of Career Change to RN. And here's what they say. This show is legit. The main reason why I love this podcast is that it is straight to the point. Nurse Mo realizes everyone's time is valuable. She gets straight to the nursing content and doesn't ramble about nonsense. Great job. Well, thank you very much for taking time to submit your rating and review and for thinking that I don't talk about nonsense. I appreciate that. So let's dive in to central line associated bloodstream infections, or as we call them, CLABSI, C-L-A-B-S-I, CLABSI. And these occur when pathogens invade the bloodstream via a central line, also called a central venous catheter, which you'll often see abbreviated as a CVC. So preventing infections related to central lines is a really high priority for hospitals. Not only can patients become very sick, they can even die from central line infections, but the associated costs add billions to the U.S. healthcare system each year. So what what do I mean when I say central line? So a central line is essentially an IV catheter a special type of IV catheter that empties into a central vein, either the inferior vena cava, the superior vena cava, most often it's one of those two, or in some cases, even the right atrium itself. Now, I would say most of the time it's going to be in that superior vena cava. Now, there are several types of central venous catheters or central lines, and the type used is going to vary based on the duration of therapy, the type of therapy, and the patient's condition. So implanted catheters are what we utilize for long-term use, and this would be, for example, your patient who's getting chemotherapy. In general, implanted catheters have lower incidence of infection than temporary access catheters. Now, there are two main types of implanted catheters. There are tunneled catheters and implanted ports. 
So tunneled catheters are placed under the skin in that subcutaneous tissue and have this short tunneled length of catheter that goes from the site of entry on the skin to the site where it actually penetrates the vein. So this makes it harder for pathogens from the surface to get into the vessel and cause a central line infection. And then that other type I mentioned is an implanted port, which is entirely beneath the skin. The catheter of an implanted port extends from a subcutaneous little infusion port to the point of the vessel cannulation or where it enters the vessel. So port insertion, getting that in place, is a surgical procedure. And to access it, it requires the nurse doing a needle puncture through the tissue, which can be uncomfortable for the patient. However, the lower infection risk associated with implanted ports can far outweigh that potential discomfort. And then looking at more short-term or temporary catheters, which is probably mainly what you're going to see in that clinical acute care setting, though, of course, you'll have patients come in who have a implanted port or who have a tunneled catheter. But most of the time for your acutely ill patient, it will be a short-term catheter. And there are a few key types and different locations where they are inserted. If you're interested in diving deeper into this article, then I invite you to go to my website where I've actually got the transcription, basically, of this episode there. And there's a ton of references that I've included that you can click straight through to and read more about this. So we're going to list these first few in order of most infection risk to lower infection risk. So probably the central venous catheter with the highest infection risk is the one that is inserted into the femoral vein. So any central venous catheter inserted in the femoral vein is going to have a higher risk for CLABSI. Now, there can be some advantages to a femoral line in some cases, and we're not talking about all of that here today. We're just talking about infection, but these advantages are often overshadowed by the infection risk. So in fact, I read the CDC recommendations on central line usage, and they basically say that femoral venous access should be avoided in adult patients whenever possible. So a key reason that infection risk is so high in this location is hey, we're, we're at the groin here. We're in a way more contaminated space than other parts of the body. High, high potential for pathogens in the groin. Additionally, what I've noticed in my practice and from taking care of all kinds of patients with all kinds of central lines, gowns and hospital beddings are often covering that site much of the time, meaning it could be at risk for less frequent assessment. So when your patient has a femoral central line, you have got to be extra vigilant about infection prevention and, when appropriate, advocating for its safe removal and possible relocation as soon as possible. Of course, if the patient is 
highly reliant on the medications infusing through that femoral central line and has no other IV access available, then that is not safe, right? It's not safe to remove that. That's what I mean by that. Okay, now let's move to the internal jugular vein insertion site. This is a very common site for central line locations. And when you look at the internal jugulars, obviously you have two. You have a right and a left. The right provides a more direct pathway to the superior vena cava. So that's the side that's most often used. I don't even know if I've ever seen a left IJ, to be honest. It's always the right IJ in my experience, though the left IJ could be used. So factors that put an IJ or internal jugular line at risk for infection are that these dressings, because of where they're located on the neck, tend to loosen more easily. Think about how much movement there is at the neck. Just the patient moving around can cause that dressing to get loose more easily. There's also, on some patients, hair. We're dealing with facial hair or neck hair, and that can cause the dressing to have a more difficult time staying secure. And then, mainly this is in your intubated patients, There's a lot of oral secretions when patients are intubated, and those oral secretions can run out of the corner of the mouth and drain down onto that dressing so it gets wet, it gets loose, it gets soiled. However, one advantage is that since these aren't covered by gowns and bedding, there's a lot more opportunity for frequent and incidental observation of the site. It just kind of occurs naturally whenever you're looking at your patient. You don't have to go looking for it like you would if you're going to say, oh yeah, I need to go check that femoral line. You're just always kind of going to be seeing that IJ whenever you look at your patient. And then the central venous catheter location site with the lower amount of infection risk is in that subclavian vein site. Thinking about where that is located on the upper chest, there's not a lot of flexion and movement there. So the patient's not going to be moving around, causing the dressing to get loose in that way. And oral secretions, though I have seen cases where there is just a lot of oral secretions. And yeah, I guess if somebody wasn't regularly performing oral hygiene, it could leak or drain or, you know, drip all the way down to that site. It's way less likely to occur than with that IJ or internal jugular site. So these dressings on a subclavian site tend to stay nice and intact way more easily than the ones on the neck. And then we have pick lines or peripherally inserted central catheter. And what this is, if you're not familiar with them yet, is a central line, but instead of being inserted close to the exit site of that catheter, it's inserted a little farther away. It's inserted peripherally in the upper arm. So it has a long catheter that reaches from that insertion site to the superior vena cava. And two key benefits of PICC lines are that they can stay in place longer than temporary non-tunneled lines like the ones we just went through and tend to have lower infection risk. For example, I found a study published in November of 2022 in the journal Antimicrobial Resistance and Infection Control. And the 
study looked at all pick lines and central venous catheters used over a two-year period in a large metropolitan hospital. And what they found was that the CLABSI rate for the central venous catheter group was 6.03 per 1,000 catheter days, while the CLABSI rate for the PIC group was 1.62 per 1,000 catheter days, so lower infection risk. Now, another type of central venous catheter that you may see is a temporary hemodialysis catheter, which may also be placed in the internal jugular, could be in the subclavian, could be in the femoral vein. Note that these may be tunneled or non-tunneled as well. So now that you have kind of a general overview of different types and locations for central venous catheters, let's talk a little bit about what we are doing to help prevent central line infections. And this starts with the insertion strategy. So a lot of that comes down to selecting the appropriate central venous catheter for this patient. And this will be done by the MD or nurse practitioner that is inserting this line. So for example, the more lumens that a central line has, the higher risk for infection. So central lines can be single lumen where it's just got one opening for the medication to come out. They can have double lumens and they can have triple lumens. And I'll tell you, I worked in the ICU and I loved a triple lumen, right? Because I could get a lot of medications running through basically one access site. But the higher the number of lumens, the higher the risk for infection. So a key way to reduce infection right from the start is when the MD chooses a catheter with the least number of lumens necessary for the patient. Do you find it hard to sleep at night? Then the Sleep Cove podcast can help you. Hi, I'm Christopher Fitton, the voice and clinical hypnotherapist behind Sleep Cove. Sleep Cove features sleep hypnosis, meditations and bedtime stories, all designed to help those of you who struggle at night to achieve a restful and peaceful night's sleep. Search for Sleep Cove on Apple Podcasts or Spotify and see why Sleep Cove helps millions of people sleep deeply all night long. And then when using a non-tunneled central venous catheter, that recommendation from the CDC is to avoid femoral sites whenever possible and to choose subclavian even over the IJ whenever appropriate. Another strategy is to utilize ultrasound guidance to guide the insertion when available to reduce the number of insertion attempts. And then if a CVC is placed during an emergency and sterile procedures cannot be absolutely confidently followed, the catheter should be replaced as soon as it is feasible and preferably before 24 to 48 hours go by. And then obviously, whenever possible, when we're doing a planned CVC insertion, following sterile technique absolutely to the letter. So to ensure this, many facilities follow something called a CLIP protocol, C-L-I-P, Central Line Insertion Practices. So CLIP protocol involves a kind of a bundle of interventions that have shown to decrease the incidence of CLABSI. And this involves hand hygiene and 
prepping the skin with chlorhexidine, alcohol, or iodine as appropriate for the patient's age, condition, and allergies. And then waiting for the skin prep agent, whichever one was used, waiting for that to dry completely before beginning the insertion. And the other component is to use maximal sterile barriers throughout the entire procedure. This includes a sterile gown for the inserter, sterile gloves for the inserter, a cap for the inserter, and anyone close by, a mask for the inserter and anyone close by, and a large sterile drape covering the patient's entire body. Basically, the only area that's exposed is that site of insertion. The evidence also shows that the use of a catheter securement device helps hold the catheter in place and reduces the risk for infection. And then once the new central venous catheter is in place, The practice where I work, the protocol, the general standard of care is to avoid connecting previously used IV tubing to the new catheter, if at all possible. If it's an emergency and the patient's highly dependent on, say, some norepinephrine, you may not be able to do that. But whenever possible, hook nice, new, clean, fresh tubing up to that brand new central line when you can. And then what about the ongoing care of our central venous catheter? So very, very important to do at least a once per shift assessment. I would say more often when I looked online and was reading the evidence, it said a daily assessment. And I'm like, well, no, that's not enough. In the facility where I work, the protocol was at least every shift and more often as needed. So you're basically making your site assessment part of your initial head to toe. And then, you know, I'm going to look at it whenever I'm in there doing something with the patient, especially if it's on that IJ, right? So looking at it and continually assessing that site. We're also going to do a daily assessment of necessity. And this can help ensure that patients get their central lines pulled as soon as they are no longer actually really needed or actually indicated. If we can supply the medications that they need via a peripheral IV, then we're going to switch to that as soon as possible. We're going to perform good hand hygiene and wear gloves whenever we're accessing that line. And we're going to change our IV tubing appropriately. We want to maintain a closed system as much as possible, so we don't want to change tubing unnecessarily. But we also don't want to have any tubing that's up there longer than indicated. So in general, your basic IV tubing is going to get changed no more frequently than every 96 hours and at least every seven days. That is what the core recommendation is by the Centers for Disease Control. I can tell you in my facility, we consider IV tubing ready to change at 96 hours. We don't leave it up for up to seven days. So this can vary by facility. Now, there are some types of tubings used for some types of medications and substances that does require more frequent changes. So tubing for propofol, that gets changed out every six to 12 hours. And in some cases, with every new container, this may vary by your facility protocol. TPN and lipid emulsion tubing is changed every 24 hours, and blood product tubing, that's changed within 24 hours or after every two units of blood. Now, this could be a facility-specific protocol as well. 
What I'm trying to say here is make sure you understand your facility's protocol for changing your tubings, especially when you have central lines being used. We're also going to change those needleless connectors, and and generally the guideline is change those when you do your tubing changes. You're also going to change them if they're soiled, if they're leaking, if they're loose, okay? And when you change that needleless connector, you're going to be wearing a mask while you do it, okay? You don't want to be breathing on that exposed line, and then you you take off that needleless connector, you scrub the hub of the catheter for 15 seconds, you're scrubbing vigorously, you're letting it dry fully before applying that new needleless connector. And we're using alcohol for that for the most part. Now, what about when you're just, say, injecting some medications or adding something to the Y site of an IV tubing that's already running into a central line? You're going to scrub the hub Scrub that vigorously with alcohol for that 15 seconds. Sing happy birthday twice. And of course, let it dry fully before accessing with that sterile Lurlock syringe. Remember, the dry time is the kill time. Now, in the facility where I work, the protocol is if the patient has a central line, they're getting a daily bath with chlorhexidine, unless maybe they've got an allergy to chlorhexidine. Obviously, with the the little ones, sometimes we don't use chlorhexidine with the babies. I'm not an expert on pediatrics, but make sure you're following your facility protocol for keeping your patients clean with whatever substance is identified as the most effective. We want to keep our patients' gowns clean. We want to keep their linens clean. And you're also flushing the catheter routinely according to facility protocol, as well as before and after medication administration. Now, earlier I spoke of assessing your dressing and looking to see that it's clean, dry, and intact. So let's talk a little bit about the central venous catheter dressing changes. So some hospitals utilize IV therapy teams of specially trained RNs who are going to do central line dressing changes. And some facilities, they may just do the dressing changes for the pick dressings. And then the standard central line dressing changes are done by the primary RN. Just make sure you know your facility facilities protocol. Definitely a central line should only be changed or the dressing of a central line should only be changed by trained personnel because it is a very careful procedure. So how often do we change a CVC dressing? We change it when it becomes loose, damp, or soiled. If you've got a beautifully intact central line dressing, We're not going to change it unless it's been seven days since the last dressing change for those semi-permeable dressings or every two days for a gauze-occlusive dressing. We don't want to unnecessarily expose that insertion site unless we have to. So again, with the semi-permeable dressing, which is most commonly what is used, those are changed every seven days unless loose damp or soiled. And then it's every two days if it's a gauze dressing. I did see one guideline that said they could have exceptions in some facilities in the cases of pediatric patients where the risk of catheter dislodgement outweighs the benefit of applying a new dressing. Again, this is just a great example of know your facility protocol. 
Sterile gloves and a mask and a cap are worn when applying that new dressing. The patient and anyone else in the room should also wear a mask because for a period of time, that site is going to be exposed to air. Before applying that new dressing, the skin is cleaned with chlorhexidine and allowed to dry fully. And again, that's for patients 18 years and older. We're talking about adults here. And then the use of a chlorhexidine biopatch at the insertion site has been shown to decrease risk of infection. This is a little round circle that goes onto like onto the skin right around that insertion site that slowly releases chlorhexidine. And then once the new dressing is applied, you add your initials, the date and the time so that the next nurse knows when the next dressing change is due. Okay, let's talk about the signs of a central line infection. So signs of an infection would include things like fever and chills, tachycardia perhaps, pain at the access site, warmth, erythema, and edema at the access site, purulent drainage, that's probably the most obvious sign. You might see that at the access site. And as you're doing your routine flushes and assessing for blood return, a sluggish catheter or a catheter with no blood return are at higher risk for infection, especially in those long-term catheters. So if you're, you're not getting good blood return, you're not having an easy time flushing, know that that line could be at higher risk for infection. You're going to amp up your observation. So what happens if your patient acquires a central line infection? So when a central line infection is suspected, the patient will have blood cultures drawn and medication prescribed based on the most likely organism. In some cases, the catheter tip may be cultured as well. And then once the organism is identified, antimicrobial therapy will be targeted to that specific organism. Now, though there are some exceptions, once a CLABSI is suspected, it is recommended that non-tunneled catheters be removed as soon as possible. This is basic source control and is the cornerstone of infectious disease treatment. And I saw this in multiple, multiple resources, which I've linked to in the blog uh, transcript that goes with this episode, including the most recent and updated version of the online journal up to date. Now, exceptions may be made in cases where the infection of a long-term catheter is caused by certain organisms that can be treated with IV antibiotics or in cases where the patient has limited access sites and is reliant upon central venous access for survival. You may hear this called catheter salvage therapy, where we leave the catheter in place, we instill antibiotics into that catheter, hoping that we can continue to utilize that access site when it's unsafe to remove it for the patient. Again, those are exceptions. The general recommended treatment from multiple, multiple peer-reviewed studies is to remove the line as soon as it is safe to do so. So I hope this overview of central line infections has increased your understanding. And if it has, I'd love for you to share it with a nurse colleague or a fellow classmate. And if you want to learn more about IV therapy, I've got a link in the episode notes 
to episode 183 called Bulletproof IV Medication Administration. This is great for nursing students or new nurses who are just learning about giving IV medications and really want to amp up your safety considerations around that going beyond just your basic five rights that you might have learned in your program. So I hope you found this overview very, very helpful. And if you did, then I'll see you back here next week. Bye for now. This podcast is brought to you by Straight A Nursing. At a time when change is constant and we are pulled in far too many directions, we need a way to stay present to life and to increase our ability to remain calm, think clearly, and maintain our well-being. Many studies indicate mindfulness improves our mental, emotional, and physical health. On a Mindful Moment with Teresa McKee, you can learn how to practice mindfulness and enjoy its many benefits. Tune in for guided meditations and to hear tips and advice from some of the most respected experts in the fields of mental health and mindfulness. The world truly can be a better place. It all starts with a mindful moment.